This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. CEO, billionaire, cryptocurrency genius. Sam Bankman-Fried held all those titles just a month ago. Not anymore. I didn't ever uh, try to commit fraud on anyone. Appearing virtually from the Bahamas, Bankman-Fried spoke on video for the first time since his company's sudden collapse. There were oversight failures, transparency failures. This is the future. FTX was one of the world's largest digital currency exchanges for people to buy, sell, hold, or trade crypto. The stunning collapse of FTX, one of the world's leading crypto exchanges, has not only shaken the crypto world, but called into question the future of blockchain and digital assets. In a year of repeated failures and crashes, the calls for increased regulation are getting louder. Dr. Ryan Clements is a law professor at the University of Calgary, where he holds the chair in business law and regulation and specializes in the regulation of fintech, blockchain, and crypto assets. He's written extensively on crypto regulatory issues, including a recent expert report on Canadian cryptocurrency governance for the Public Order Emergency Commission. He joins me on the podcast to provide some background into the growth of crypto, the collapses of Luna and FTX, and where Canada sits on the regulatory spectrum. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, crypto has been very much in the news in, in recent weeks as part of a year in which it feels like the sector has been lurching from disaster to disaster, most notably like the Terra Luna implosion and, of course, the recent bankruptcy of FTX. You know, there's been a tendency to lump all of these things together amid calls now for more regulation, consumer and investor protection. And you've been doing some really exceptional work on these issues. I'm hoping we can break down a little bit some of the differences and and get a better understanding, especially from a Canadian perspective, about what the regulatory climate looks like and what we should be thinking about. But before we get into some of these sort of headline-making issues, there are just so many different kind of cryptocurrencies that are at play. Can you can you break it down a little bit so we we know what it is we're talking about and then get into some of the the, some of the specifics? Yeah, sure. Uh, So that's a great question. And it's something that I see far too often is um, I, I would say an overgeneralization or maybe even a conflation of forms. You'll, I, I like to joke that cryptocurrency means so many things that it doesn't really mean anything right now. And in order for us to really understand the regulatory policy formation, we have to be able to isolate and be precise about what specifically we're talking about. So I'll kind of walk you really high level um, through a few different forms and, and use cases. It's also important to understand, to, you know, the, the other thing that I hear, uh, in addition to some conflation on the word uh, cryptocurrencies, is, as I will often hear, the untrue statement of cryptocurrencies aren't regulated. Uh, we actually have quite robust regulatory policies in this country. Um, uh, we have some uh, a, a lot of measures that have been put into place, and, and I think that there's a lot of gaps, which I can get into. But, uh, you know, they are actually uh, regulated in uh, many dynamics, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. But if, if we're focusing kind of like what's the unifying concept that ties all cryptocurrencies together? Well, it's a digital asset that's created through the use of distributed ledger technology, which is colloquially called blockchain. And I know that there's, there's different forms of blockchain. There's different nuances to distributed ledger technology. But probably the best place to start 
is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was created out of white paper in 2008, pseudo-anonymously, and it created a form of digital money that didn't require an intermediary. He used a distributed ledger, used cryptography and a consensus mechanism to be able to disintermediate entities like banks and allow for a mechanism where we could prove using this consensus mechanism called proof of work where we could transfer stores of value across the internet without having a double spend problem. Bitcoin was designed as kind of an antithesis to the traditional financial system because it was designed in a way to have a cap on monetary supply uh, it was designed to not require banks or governments and, and to create this kind of uh, monetary system that, that we can rely on. Well, the, the irony in Bitcoin is, is that there's been the creation of a whole bunch of analogs to Bitcoin that, that could perform a similar function, but none of which are really being used as money right now. They were quickly started to be used. They were actually used in a form of money, in a form of, of um, uh, a medium of exchange early on. You know, you've heard the stories of Bitcoin for the pizza and everything else like that. But, but quickly over time, they turned into a analog to, to somewhat of a tech stock. Um, and, and I'll get into that in a second. But there was an evolution that took place. So from digital money, shortly after the launch of Bitcoin, an individual, a Russian-Canadian named Vitalik Buterin came along and said, well, this Bitcoin is a really good idea. What else can we disintermediate? If this allows us to, to move money, you know, an, a digital form of money between participants without a bank or without a government, what else could we get rid of? What about stock exchanges? What about lending functions on banks? What about marketplaces and, and exchanges and, and, you know, derivatives contracts? And so, this gave rise to the Ethereum network and the crypto asset called Ether, which like uh, the Bitcoin network was a blockchain, but this one was programmable. So this allowed for software to be written onto this blockchain that perform some type of a function and what is commonly referred to as a smart contract. So the idea of a smart contract, uh, it was coined by a, an early um, uh, participant in the Bitcoin ecosystem, some, some of which some people think he is, Satoshi, this uh, gentleman named Nick Zabel, who uh, analogized the vending machine effectively, like a, a binary logic, if A, then B. So the idea that something like the Bitcoin blockchain could be programmed gave rise to this ecosystem, which is uh, widely known as decentralized finance. And this, al this allows for certain value to be transferred not, uh, without an intermediary. Um, and there's a whole host of cryptocurrencies, we call them crypto assets uh, is more precise, within these decentralized ecosystems. Some perform a utility function, uh, others maybe perform a governance function. There's other types of stores of value that can be used within these ecosystems. And so th there's a, a, a you know, large uh, a group of these uh, different crypto assets, and many of these particular crypto assets are, are can be purchased on these centralized um, exchanges. The idea behind this, though, so if I take a few steps back, and I think originally Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum, there was other programmable blockchains that have come along, and these other tokens within the Ethereum network, the, the original idea was this sense of peer-to-peer -peer finance, that everyone wouldn't need a bank anymore or wouldn't need an investment dealer or wouldn't need a marketplace. 
we would take custody of our own crypto assets. If we wanted to transfer money, we transfer directly to someone else using the protocol. If we wanted to trade crypto assets, we would interface into a smart contract and do it that way. If we wanted to get a loan, we would interface into some type of protocol and do it that way. The reality, though, is that's actually not what's happened. The, the crypto assets themselves started getting traded like stocks. The volatility of those made them not good money functions. So they weren't being used outside of uh, uh, kind of crypto ecosystems for a payment mechanism because they are far too volatile. Well, the and people weren't really holding on to custody. They were relying on other entities for custodial services. The fact that crypto assets were not being used as a payment mechanism and were quite volatile led to the evolution of these things called stable coins, which is an attempt to peg the value of crypto asset. They could be utilized on a blockchain to peg it to some other reference asset. And there's a, a, a number of varieties of these stable coins. I've written quite a bit on these and I, we, can, we can get into them if you'd like, uh, but that's another iteration of a, of a crypto asset. There's uh, other, other types too, non-fungible tokens. So Bitcoin has a fungibility element to it. So there's these other tokens that have created that have unique characteristics that can perform a variety of utility functions potentially. Um, you know, things like you know, representing digital ownership of, uh, or representing ownership of some type of asset, either digital or, or offline. Uh, they can be used for uh, paying royalties to, uh, you know, entertainers and, you know, gaming ownership. And there's a whole host of things that NFTs can, non-fungible tokens or NFTs can be used for. Um, to date, they've, those like Bitcoin and like other crypto assets have actually taken on a financialization element. So they've, they've been largely traded in marketplaces that resemble stock exchanges in, in many cases. And so, What's important to see when, when you're just looking really high level in the crypto ecosystem from a descriptive perspective is that there is an ideal use case to a lot of this stuff. So an ideal use case of Bitcoin is digital money. Okay? An ideal use case of these DeFi applications is to be able to perform an analogous financial product or service to what we'd see in, in the uh, normal world without using these intermediaries. An ideal form of NFTs is some type of representation of ownership. What we've actually seen is somewhat different. We've, we've seen people not really wanting to self-custody, but rather rely on intermediaries. This is a big irony of crypto is what's supposed to disintermediate is actually given rise to a whole host of new intermediaries. We've seen people not really use these crypto assets for what they're intended to be used for, but rather speculate on the value of them. And that, that really helps to understand some of the policy formation that we've seen around this space. And I'm happy to, to get into any of that if you'd like. Okay. Well, that's a pretty awesome introduction, uh, both of the history and where we find ourselves. So let's, let's get into, we'll get into one of those large intermediaries, FTX, in just a moment. But before we do that, let's stay on the stablecoin side mm -hmm. and the emergence of algorithmic stablecoins, uh, which in some ways, the, the collapse of Terra Luna, which became one of the very large algorithmic stablecoins, has really precipitated a lot of the kind of contagion that, that we've seen as it mm -hmm. took so much money out of this sector with the loss. Can, you know, you were 
you were vocal on this in advance, essentially suggesting that what happened yeah. was going to happen. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happened? Do we have regulations there? Do we need regulations? Going back, so Bitcoin's supposed to be money. Nobody's using it as money. Too volatile. So this idea came forward of a stablecoin. So the idea behind a stablecoin is, well, let's use a blockchain. There's a lot of conceptual utility to having a payment mechanism on a blockchain. Okay, we can, this 24-7, 365. We don't need, so if, if you live in a, a part of the world, you know, uh, overseas, moving money, I have graduate students sometimes run into this challenge. You know, you're trying to send money from uh, overseas over to Canada and it has to go through three layers of intermediation and everyone takes a little cut. And by the time, and, and, and you're switching with different uh, um, uh, currencies. And so there's an exchange differential. And by the time it, it gets here, all of a sudden you're 13% to 20% less than what you had at the very beginning. And so the idea of a stable coin is, well, if we have these global blockchains like Ethereum, which is which can be accessed anywhere, and we have this crypto asset, and it could be instantly transferred from across the world to a wallet in you know near instantly transferred across the world to to canada or wherever you are doesn't that seem like a good idea and and it kind of does as long as it can maintain stable stable value so one of the first iterations that came out of this was facebook's libra project which contemplated a very ambitious scope of basically utilizing Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram, and it had other partners, including originally PayPal and Visa, MasterCard, and it contemplated this idea where they had a blockchain, they were going to collateralize. So think kind of like a money market mutual fund in a way, like for every stable coin that they were going to issue, they were going to hold somewhere in a bank, an equivalent amount of fiat or a government bond to, to ensure that this thing isn't volatile like Bitcoin is. Well, that never got off the ground, but some stable coins did get off the ground, particularly one called uh, Tether, USDC, USDT, and another one called Circle, USDC. Well, these fiat-backed stable coins weren't the only types. So fiat-backed stable coins are the largest types right now, but there was, there was types that emerged in the DeFi space. So when I say DeFi, I think program smart contracts. So there was a stable coin from protocol called MakerDAO, called DAI, which held reserves, but it used other crypto assets to, to uh, collateralize. And so they would issue these DAI stable coins and they say, these things are going to remain stable because we have a basket of reserves of other crypto assets. Because crypto assets are volatile, these baskets of reserves were over collateralized. So they would have usually about 150% for, for the dollar, where the fiat-backed ones would maintain one-to-one. Well, then there was this other form that came and they are uh, known as algorithmic or uncollateralized stable coins. What these things purported to do is effectively act as their own central bank, but also embed a form of economic incentives to facilitate a stable value. So what they would do, and there was several that failed, uh, Iron Finance, uh, uh, Basis. And then there was one that that really took off. It was called Terra. And so when what, what Terra 
tried to do is they said, okay, we're going to have a stable coin, UST. It's going to be worth a dollar. We're not going to hold any, at first, they said, we're not going to hold any collateral on this. And so people said, well, then how is it worth a dollar? Well, because we're going to have a second coin called Luna. And we're going to create an arbitrage opportunity so that if this UST, this stablecoin, ever falls below a dollar, you can you can uh, go buy it and we will give you a dollar worth of Luna. So you can, and then you can sell your Luna in the secondary market. And, and, and then we're going to use a smart contract so that when we, uh, when you redeem that UST, we're going to decrease the supply. And so it's going to increase it back up. And so there's going to be this relationship where we're going to rely on uh, intermediaries that have their own economic incentives to perform this kind of constant arbitrage to ensure the stable value between the two. So I saw this and, you know, I, I did a lot of work in, in my master's and doctorate on the global financial crisis and, and 1987 and, and other periods of economic, you know, or financial crises. And, and I saw some flaws in this thing. I was one of the few law professors. I wrote a paper published in, in October 2021 called Built to Fail, the Inherent Fragility of Algorithm Stablecoins, where I argued that, that this there's some, there's some problems with this structure. So number one, historically, other financial products that have relied on arbitragers to maintain stability have failed when there's something called step-back risk. In the context of a crisis, if the arbitragers aren't there, to perform the function that you want them to, to function, then you have a risk of what we call a death spiral. So if the arbitragers say, we don't want Luna back, okay, we're trying to sell Luna and, and we're gonna sell it as quickly as possible. Well, when, when you uh, redeem UST and receive Luna, that increases the price of Luna, puts downward pressure on it. And if there's a lot of selling you're, and people are selling UST at the same time, then both those coins are gonna go down together at the exact same time. And number two, uh, this whole ecosystem relies on a demand function. And the proponents of the Terra ecosystem said, well, yeah, so does the US dollar. And I said, yeah, but there's a big difference between the US dollar and the Terra dollar because there is, a, a, you know, apart from the you know, taxation power of the US government, the way that US dollar is being used so widely throughout the world gives a, a demand function that is not even comparable to this. So what is the use value of UST? Where can you even spend it? Well, the uh, proprietors of Terra, they went and you know, negotiated a deal with the Washington Nationals to be able to buy hot dogs with UST. And that was, they, they claimed that it was, you, you could use it in Korea with this payment mechanism called Kai. But the big use case came from uh, another uh, protocol that they built on the Terra ecosystem called Anchor, which they said, well, there's demand for UST because we will pay you 20% if you, if you deposit it in this smart contract. Well, then researchers like me said, how in the world are you paying 20%? Where's this 20% coming from? Well, some investigation into this thing showed that the 20% was being subsidized by the, the protocol developers. They borrowers of the protocol were paying about seven or 8%. They were collateralizing their borrowings and they were using that collateral for staked ether, which paid another six or 7%, but there was a gap and that gap was being basically being propped up by proprietors of the uh, uh, Terra ecosystem. And so, you know, early on, 
there was a few of us, myself and, and a few other profs and some regulators and some, you know, some actually some Bitcoin maximalists who saw it as well and said, this thing is going to break. The problem was it was hitting its peak around the most euphoric moments of the crypto market before the crash. So like October 2021 to kind of March, April 2022, the ecosystem got to be about 60 billion dollars. The they the proprietors of the Terra ecosystem, I guess maybe some of our arguments started to hold some weight because they started to collateralize with Bitcoin. They they had a partial reserve with Bitcoin. They said, well, if there's this death spiral happen, we're going to sell this Bitcoin to you know stave it off. And and I remember I was interviewed by by Bar by Barons for an article on this, and and he said, what what do you think about this? I said, that's actually a, I think that this could actually catalyze a run because you're creating a Bitcoin bounty now that people will might want that. So there might be an incentive to actually try to break this thing. And that's actually what happened. We we had a a run against anchor, a, a, a depegging of UST, a death spiral. The Bitcoin reserves weren't su sufficient to uh, uh, offset it. The death spiral was massive. The entire $60 billion ecosystem failed in a matter of weeks. And it has had a tremendous fallout effect. From a regulatory perspective, is this all unregulated? Is yeah. should there be some kind of regulations? Can there be some kind of regulations for for these kinds of algorithmic stable coins that are that don't have the sort of backing that 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 even some of the other kind of so-called traditional stable coins might? Yeah. So interestingly, since Terra's implosion. It seems like there's some private ordering that's happening because the market has moved away from uncollateralized algorithmic stablecoins. They're moving to more collateralized stablecoin forms. So with respect to uncollateralized stable, so first, first of your question, are there regulations in Canada on stablecoins? No. The answer to that is no. I uh, just published a piece in the Canadian Business Law Journal on this, getting into it, focusing mostly on the largest types, these fiat backs, and I have very specific regulatory kind of prescriptive ideas for that. The algorithmic stablecoins are not regulated. There's some talk that they could be the sacrificial lamb, uh, particularly in light of, you know, now that FTX has really catalyzed, you know, there's, there's some movement in the U.S., um, you know, th that then would lend itself to, well, what would that mean? Well, there could be what could equate to some type of a ban where you say, where regulars say, if you're going to operate a stable coin, it has to be collateralized. So it has to, you know, you literally can't operate one that's not collateralized. Or if you do, they say, then it's a security. And if it's a security, then you have to have a prospectus or you have to fit within the exemption. So I could see it going that route, uh, potentially, that either... If, if we move it into kind of banking regulation, then it's going to be purely collateralized. And, and then that, that opens up a whole different framework of prudential controls and custodial controls and, and a whole host of things, which I can get into. If it's uncollateralized, likely it sits in the securities framework. You have to have prospectus or it can only operate within an exemption. Uh, the, the challenge with that is always going to, and this is kind of opens up a, a big issue. So DeFi in its purest form, this this self-custody, direct interface with smart contracts, not using an intermediary, that becomes tremendously difficult to enforce against. So even if the CSA 
So all the Prudential Securities Commission came forward with a national instrument and said, okay, algorithmic stable coins are security. You, you, you know, we don't even need bespoke, we don't need a legislative solution. We, we believe in security. You have to uh, uh, issue a prospectus or find an exemption. And then something like Terra happens again. Well, Terra was operating out of several countries, including South Korea, Singapore, Dubai. How do you enforce against that? And how do you prevent users from accessing it? Because th this is actually a fairly big problem in crypto these days is uh, um, offshore platforms that are accessible by virtual private networks. And so even like even if the regulator says, well, that isn't allowed here, you know, like FTX, for example, offering margin and derivatives and things that can that the regulatory so, so we have very robust regulatory frameworks for centralized crypto asset trading in Canada. And it came out of Quadriga. So it, it, you know, it came out of 2019. There was a series of consultation paper that led into a series of staff notices. And we have the uh, implementation of significant regulatory controls over crypto asset trading platforms. But users will sometimes see, oh, FTX, like they're offering leverage. They're offering perpetual futures. They're offering a whole bunch of coins you can't get in Canada. How do I get there? And you know, there's, ev there's evidence that, that well, I just saw last week, 100,000 monthly users on FTX.com, the offshore platform, 100,000 monthly Canadian users on that. So to get back to your question, no, they're not regulated. It seems like there's some private ordering that's happening where the industry is saying, you know what, that death spiral argument is a decent argument. Let's move away from these. Interestingly, the fully collateralized forms of stable coins or the over collateralized forms of stable coins like, like DAI, they've actually performed pretty well. They've, they've maintained some stability. Now, now, they're not being used to buy groceries. What are they being used for? Well, they're used to execute trading, trading positions on DeFi. They're used to collateralize borrowing on, on DeFi. So they're used as a money function within a DeFi ecosystem. These off-chain collateralized ones, I think that they're the most likely to be used in the future to buy groceries or pay rent or global remittance, you know, for, for students across and, and others, you know, travel, whatever. But I, I highly anticipate policy formation around these that's going to require proof of reserves, custodial controls, um, you know, uh, consumer remedial measures, uh, uh, governance and risk management standards, operational standards. I, I think that anything in, and, and why, why would regulatory frameworks be required for that? Well, if you look to history and other financial products that people thought were money and turned out not to be money, there is a cascading and contagion effect for that. And, and we saw like when Reserve Primary broke the buck with money market mutual funds, there was a contagion where everyone started selling off the entire sector and it started infecting other elements of the ecosystem. And so the, the prudential regulators, banking regulators and systemic risk regulators are gonna be very cautious it, for something that, that widespread consumers are gonna treat as money. And they're going to want to ensure that there's like sufficient transparency, prudential controls, custodial controls, risk management, governance controls, so that it actually is money. So if it purports to be a dollar, there's a dollar that backs it. You know, that's so I, I see a lot of 
crystallization regulatory policy in that space. I, I think the algos are maybe going to disappear. If not, I see them more likely fitting within securities type type regulation over time. Okay. Really interesting prognostication of all the kind of issues <laughs> that come to the fore. You've mentioned FTX a few times. Why don't we get a little bit into FTX? I mean, in some ways, you know, obviously some people from the outside look at may look at it and say, oh, it's the same thing, big collapse of, and a lot of people losing money. But uh, this does feel like something else entirely, large exchange, a bank run, uh, mm-hmm. and this dizzying collapse. Is, is this just a, a basic case of fraud? Is it an update of some of the issues mm-hmm. that have plagued banks and some exchanges in the past until we saw things like reserve requirements, depositor insurance, or you know, is there something else at play that is, is unique to crypto? Yeah. Well, definitely the functionality of a crypto exchange is different than what we see with traditional exchanges. So if we think about a traditional exchange, for example, I can't get an account with the Toronto Stock Exchange. I can I can get an account with a dealer who's a member and maybe it's a full service account or an order execution DIY, a discount brokerage account, but that's who I interface with. I interface with the dealer. The dealer is subject to a whole host of regulatory parameters from custodial controls to proficiency and integrity standards and solvency and, and um, uh, 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 a whole, you know, seg- cash segregation, a whole host of regulatory standards. The marketplace itself is subject to a whole host of regulatory standards as well. And, but if we look at the crypto ecosystem, what you've actually, so, Apart from the irony of having intermediaries involved in crypto, which is a, a big irony, I, I, I think I can't understate it. You have these entities that are performing numerous roles that traditional financial institutions wouldn't be able to provide on their own. So you have entities like FTX who are onboarding clients. They are taking custody of client fiat and client crypto. In some cases, uh, not in Canada, not with the regular platforms in Canada, but in FTX for sure, they're providing margin. They're providing, so they're providing credit. So they're acting like a bank. They're taking, it's like you think, well, where does that credit come from? Well, they're either using the customer deposits or they have some other capitalization source. It appears that they're using custom deposits, but they're providing credit. They're there in some cases, you you know, some of the largest, the, the largest crypto asset trade platform in the world, Binance, even invests in some of the coin issuers themselves and takes p- proprietary positions. Some of the platforms will 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 actually facilitate affiliated entities. This was happening with FTX, a hedge fund that was owned by the owner of FTX was the primary liquidity provider within the marketplace itself. So they're providing the marketplace, they're, they're a lender, they're onboarding, they're a dealer, right? Those are separate things in, in traditional finance. And each one of those things are, are, are uh, subject to significant regulatory parameters. So when we look at FTX, so what actually happened at FTX? What did we know that happened at FTX? Well, there was a series of events that are becoming, there's still a lot of opacity, but we know some things that have happened. We know that there was a, Coindesk report 
on November 2nd that said an affiliated entity, Alameda, was bring, teetering on the brink of insolvency. It basically only was capitalized with a token that FTX created itself. There was then a, a bit of a, a Twitter dispute between the uh, owner of the largest crypto asset platform in the world, CZ Binance, and Caroline Ellison and Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, Caroline Ellison uh, from Alameda Research and Sam Bankman-Fried about this FTT token. There was a, uh, a flood of FTT tokens on the market by Binance, which then led to a huge price drop in FTT, likely made Alameda solvent and created a whole bunch of worries that FTX was insolvent. That then led to a whole bunch of users. Now, now you, you can't understate how big this platform was. So only months prior, it had a market cap valuation of about 32 billion. It had millions of users on this platform. So as these this battle was happening publicly, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of FTX users started to go, is FTX going to go down? I better get my money out of this thing. I better get my crypto out of this thing. There was an old-fashioned run on the bank. Okay, So everyone tried to, to get their money out at the same time, and FTX had to say, we can't give you your money. So then that opens up the next question of why can't they give the money? And that's what we're trying to investigate right now is because in, so in Canada, we had a platform implosion uh, called um, uh, Quadriga, 2000, end of 2018 or 2019, which then led to a series of regulatory steps by the Canadian Securities Ministries. So jointly the Provincial Securities Commissions taking jurisdiction over the custodial trading of crypto assets. And it was an idios globally at the time, an idiosyncratic approach where the Canadian securities regulators said, if you don't control your crypto, and put this out in a staff notice 21327 in 2019, they said, if you don't, if, if you don't have custody of your crypto, if someone else is custing your crypto for you, the relationship between that custodian and you is either a security or a derivative, which allows the legal jurisdiction to kick in on these platforms. That led to a, uh, a staff notice that came after that, 21329, where the Canadian Securities Ministries started applying legacy rules. So marketplace rules, dealer rules, including things like client cash segregation, requirements to use qualified custodians, those qualified custodians subject to a whole bunch of prudential measures and reporting and, and financial statements and a, a whole statutory architecture got built around platforms like FTX that was providing this custodial service. And, and no margin was allowed, no derivatives. There's a certain carve outs for, for some permitted clients, but for the most part, no margin or derivatives. And so stuff that was happening at FTX wasn't allowable here. But so we have this very robust we have this very robust system in Canada for the platforms who have actually kind of gone through the, the process or are in the, in the process of getting registered as platforms. The OC keeps a, a record of all these things. FTX wasn't adhering to any of that stuff. FTX was operating what looks to be a bank without any form of approval to do so, using client funds to loan out to this affiliated entity, Alameda, who 
it, it appears to me suffered some catastrophic losses because of the Terra ecosystem. The the problem though for for Canadians, a lot of Canadians might be going, well, if I'm using a regulated entity that has all these controls, why is my Bitcoin down so much? Well, because this is a highly interconnected market right now. This is one of the the big challenges in crypto assets. Is you know, if you look at the price of Bitcoin, Terra ecosystem goes down, Bitcoin takes a hit. Celsius goes down, Voyager goes down, Bitcoin takes a hit. You know, you the irony of all these intermediaries and and the failure of these, and that FTX goes down, Bitcoin take a huge hit. The failure of these intermediaries uh, is creating like a contagion effect on the price of Bitcoin. And so it's interesting to actually see some of the what I would describe as Bitcoin maximalists out there saying, let's get rid of this stuff. <laughs> this stuff doesn't represent any of crypto. This stuff has nothing to do with the original vision of Satoshi in the white paper of 2008. Let's, you, you're seeing Bitcoin maximalists on, on Twitter say like, we're not crypto. <laughs> crypto is financialization. We're different. And so it's interesting to see these kind of like fractions even emerge within crypto ecosystems at large. It is interesting. I just want to quickly, you've helped explain why some people, even if they weren't FTX customers and there weren't that many Canadians that were, uh, why they still, of course, would would feel some of the negative reverberations mm-hmm. that have come from this implosion. Um, is that regulatory environment, though, that you just described coming in the aftermath of our own implosion with Quadriga, does that help explain why FTX doesn't doesn't officially operate or didn't officially operate in Canada, even if there was yeah. mechanisms for some Canadians to to use VPNs or other ways to to work around that. Yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, it does. There, there. So the with our regulatory uh, mechanism or there are requirements that we have, we've increasingly upped the ante on these platforms who refuse to comply, and and you've seen some enforcement action take place. Uh, the OSC has been particularly uh, active in enforcement action. The CSA put required a pre-registration undertaking this summer that said either you agree to comply or you're or you're basically going to get an enforcement action. So you've seen some of the other platforms. So the the mechanism of compliance is a bit confusing to some people because the the it kind of allows like an interim step or a longer term step. So the interim step is through a restricted deal. So what, what ends up happening is the CSA comes in, you know, uh, uh, there's a principal regulator with the particular provincial uh, securities commission where the platform is located and then working through exemptive relief with the other um, uh, provincial securities commissions. They, they look at the platform and they say, okay, well, what's happening on this platform? Is this like, are they just prop trading? Is this like a dealer a dealer platform? Are they creating an, a, a two-sided marketplace? Is it a high, like, what are they actually doing? And, and actually, I actually really like the flexibility of this approach because it's not, there's a lot of particular and contextual operational dynamics and particular risks. And the CSA is taking a very contextual approach to each one of these, which is taking some time for the platforms to be registered as a result of that. The Framework says basically you can get a restricted dealer uh, 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 registration. Uh, we're going to look at it and apply, you know, some type of contextual hybrid rules for dealer rules and marketplace rules. But we're going to give time limited relief for two two years under this restricted dealer category. Then you have to go to IROC. But some of the more sophisticated platforms, 
they just went straight to IROC. So straight to full investment dealer, like CoinSquare, for example, they're the only uh, one that, that has been registered straight IROC because they were operating a marketplace platform from the very beginning. And so they went straight to IROC. Um, and some of these other platforms are, you know, looking at that route. So there's, you can go to the OC's website and you can see the status of the registered platforms and, and what, what uh, registration status they have, and, you know, whether it's IROC restricted dealer, IROC dealer versus IROC marketplace, et cetera. Um, the, some platforms just haven't, haven't undertaken at all. And FTX uh, hadn't undertaken anything, wasn't complying. They had a potential inroad into Canada through a, uh, 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 acquisition, a, a pending acquisition that has fallen apart of Bitville, which is a uh, Alberta-based restricted uh, a dealer platform who ha was um, re fully registered. That deal has fallen apart. And, and my understanding was FTX is that was kind of the inroads into Canada was to come through the acquisition of Bitville and allow it operational status across Canada. The, the uh, uh, challenge and what, you know, what you're hearing a lot right now, I've been listening to a lot of this, you know, CFTC hearing yesterday and uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's um, uh, interview the other day. And like they, they were trying to identify, well, you know, there's different FTX entities that were operating in different, you know, areas and, and adhering to the local registration that FTX.com was Bahamian and operating with under the Bahamian standards. The problem, again, is that that FTX.com, which was the platform that was providing all the leverage and all the margin and providing, you know, the, the broadest the access, access. That it was the central point of failure because uh, and was the bank run. It was still accessible by by Canadians. And, and that's that's a challenge, I think, with any regulatory policy formation. You know, the DeFi is a different story because we're looking at regulating its <laughs> Legacy financial systems look to an intermediary or a person, an issuer of securities, an entity in the business of dealing securities, a marketplace. We look for something identifiable to regulate. DeFi isn't identifiable. It's smart contracts programmed on, on publicly accessible blockchain. So that that's an area where we don't have clear regulatory policy around. Things that are identifiable, we do have clear policy around, but we assess our regulatory policies on the entities that we see in Canada. These other ones, which can cascade volatility into Canada, they're not uh, complying and they're still accessible. So, you know, I, I get the question, well, are they subject to our regulations? Yes. If, if you're doing business in Canada, if you're accessible, then, then our rules say you should comply with this the challenge is, is like well how do you like at some level being at the osc is like playing whack-a-mole where you know you're constantly you know, apart, apart from all the other stuff that happens in this ecosystem like pump and dumps and you know we haven't even talked about icos like using a token to raise money when you should be complying with securities rules just because you call something a token doesn't necessarily mean that you can sidestep securities rules right like in substance over form so one of the challenges for securities regulators has been a has been a lot of whack-a-mole for the last you know five six years in this area. Yeah, so there's there's a lot there. Obviously, we keep going on for a long time. I, I want to just close with with two questions for you. You've you've talked about how 
people underestimate to the extent to which we do have a regulated environment when it comes to these issues. And I think you've highlighted it with some of the discussion that we've had. What do you see is coming next from a regulatory perspective? Clearly, there is there's a lot of momentum behind it, given what we've seen take place this past year. What 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 lies ahead, do you think, from a, especially from a Canadian perspective when it comes to this space and regulation? Um. So there's there's quite a few areas that I have identified. So I, I recently wrote the the expert commission report for the Public Order Emergency Commission on Cryptocurrency Governance, and and I have a quite a long section. My last section is on kind of uh, gaps and governance risks and and areas where new clarity uh, is is or regulatory clarity is warranted and would be helpful. Um, you know, things like stable coins. We have no rules for stable coins. There is potential consumer utility in stable coins. We don't have rules on NFTs. We don't even know what NFTs are, to be honest with you. We're, we're not sure what form of property they are. Um, we're not, it's not entirely clear that they are a security or they're not a security. It would be helpful to have some regulatory parent. And some of this stuff is going to require a legislative solution because we can't just, you know, we have some very nebulous open-ended sub-prongs of definition of security in this country, which allow for judicially created flexibility in interpretation. But that can only go so far. Like at some point, we're going to need some jurisdictional clarity on which, you know, which agency has has jurisdiction over a stable coin and, you know, which rules is OSPI going to regulate these? Is it going to come under banking or is it going to come under securities or is the Bank of Canada? Like, is it going to fit with, we have this new Retail Payments Activities Act, for example, and it's not clear whether or not stable coins will fit under that, for example, as a payment service provider. So we just have a lot of these ambiguities that would be helpful if we had some clarity on. We don't have any clarity on uh, uh, decentralized or autonomous organizations, DAOs. We don't know if those are unlimited liability partnerships. We don't we don't know exactly what they are, and I think that that's a friction to people utilizing them. It would be nice to have some sense of what that is and whether or not the governance tokens that are used for DAOs are are uh, securities, uh, for example. Um, so I do see slowly regulatory policy formation in filling these gaps, but we have to be practical and be mindful. So we just had a bill that sought, you know, some clarity in this area and it got easily defeated. And what's somewhat unfortunate about that bill is I think it, I think it got mischaracterized a little bit. Like my, I was watching the debate on that and it seemed to, the debate seemed to center around, uh, you know, Bitcoin and and things that Polyev has said a, a while ago, and and it and where the bill itself was was you know ideally trying to move forward on some legislative clarity, and so the the challenge that I would say right now in even any form of legislative clarity is that I think the crypto industry is probably at an all time confidence low right now in terms of its public perception. And because public perception is low, there doesn't seem to be a lot of political capital and a lot of political will to foster, you know, uh, accommodative legislative frameworks that allow for, for some, some, you know, uh, uh, entrepreneurs and, and innovators to be able to create use cases for blockchain. You know, we, we have a CSA sandbox, which can be utilized. Alberta has a, uh, Financial Innovation Act, low, uh, Provincial Sandbox. Um, 
But I think that the crypto industry needs to do a better job at showing use case value for some of this stuff outside of just speculation and leverage. I think that the appetite from the public, many of whom got involved when Tom Brady was telling us it was a good idea and, and David Ortiz was telling us to get into it. And they've been hit now with three successive contagion hits, one from Terra, one from Celsius Voyager, and now another one from FTX. And they're either sitting on big losses or they've sold their, their positions altogether. And they're saying, what's the point of any of this stuff? And so I, I think that as more clear use cases come out of it, uh, we'll see the, the crystallization of more policy around it. And I, if I was to bet, I'd, my guess is the first piece is probably stable coins, fiat-backed stable coins, because those seem to have a, a tangible use case value that is, that is identifiable right now. We just need regulatory parameters to ensure that that if something's worth says it's worth a dollar, it's actually worth a dollar because we have proof of reserves that shows, you know, there's that because you know the crypto ecosystem's not gaining its stability inherently from crypto, it's gaining its stability from the traditional system, right? Right now it's it's too volatile otherwise. So yeah, that's 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 what I think. So I, I I'm hopeful to see some more utility and and you know, hopefully some policy formation. Because I, I don't think that we can fill the gaps that I identify in my paper without some legislative solutions. Okay, so a role for legislators, uh, and you've identified the need for actual use cases. And so why don't we close with this? You, you know, you were correct in prognosticating some of the challenges that have arisen. Where do you see things in a couple of years? Are you optimistic that the technology itself still matters and that we will see some of those use cases emerge? Or is this just going to be one of those blips that we'll look back on and a lot of people will shake their heads as to why this attracted so much interest and investment all along? You know, no, nobody knows the future. There's there's some interesting scholarship that I've seen and written about in relation to dot com that sometimes euphoric bubbles can help to finance latent value propositions that that aren't known for 30 years. You know what I mean? And may, maybe wouldn't have gotten off the ground if we didn't have a little bit of you know bubble mania involved in it. I don't see the need for 21,000 coins that don't do anything directly. It, it wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing some of that stuff disappear and some some of the, you know, the direct financialization elements of it either consolidate or thin out a little bit. I, um, you know, th there's a there's a, a, a vibrant debate academically on utility on blockchain. The there's there's lots of emerging conceptual studies uh, on it. There seems to be a good value propositions where there's a need for distributed trust, and you're starting to see some enterprise use cases across, you know, like over-the-counter bond trading, for example. And you know, there's some ideas of of maybe it could be utilized in various, you know, data capacities uh, uh, for, you know, energy transactions or for tokenized securities or for digital identity or for healthcare records, you know, so, but, but most people, if you just walk down your local street and talk to everyone you see, you know, 
and you ask them how much blockchain has changed their life, most people would say it hasn't at all. And, and most people would say the only experience they have with blockchain, it's actually not nothing to do with blockchain. It's like trading on Wealthsimple, right? <laughs> like it's like a centralized crypto as a trading platform. So will, will blockchain emerge? I don't know. Like I, I am very supportive of, of, of clear regulatory frameworks that can foster innovation. And I hope to, to see some use case value. There is scholarship out there that points out a few ongoing challenges with blockchain. Uh, one of which is the issue of custody, because in a perfect world, like a, a lot of the most valuable blockchain use cases it contemplates self-custody and, and it doesn't seem like people, and maybe the technology will change and the interfaces will change and it'll be better over time. And the and even the computer systems will get better. But right now, people don't seem to want self-custody. They seem to want to like hand off custody to someone else. And the moment you hand off custody to someone else, well, that's a point of vulnerability. It's a point of vulnerability for cybersecurity, operational risk, risk management, governance, et cetera. All of the things we've seen at FTX, that's a, that's a point of vulnerability. The other issue, which we probably don't have time to get into, but it's the, the question of, of remedies. So if something happens on a blockchain and there's some type of a need for a centralized actor to reverse the chain and to be able to get back a crypto. So if there's a code, code exploit, for example, or if there's some type of a hack, or if there's something that doesn't go right, and then the need to appeal to a central authority, it's not easy for a central authority to reverse the chain. It's not easy. And sometimes it is literally impossible because if we're dealing with a public blockchain and the, whatever value has been extracted, it could be gone. And, and a central authority like a court or a regulator doesn't have a remedial mechanism to be able to reverse the chain. And so then, then you start thinking, well, then we should make permissioned and private chains. And the criticism to that is, well, what's the point of having a blockchain? If, if, if we're going to give someone the master key, why not just run it like land titles or run it like the Toronto Stock Exchange? That would seem to make more sense to do it that way. So I don't know the future. I What I anticipate is the, the most extremes on both sides are probably wrong. The blockchain has no value, probably wrong. Blockchain is a panacea, highly likely to be wrong. I... We're going to fit somewhere on the spectrum. I th I I think that there is use value. You know, like you even are you like you already identified. Bitcoin still works. You know that that seems to work fairly well. That's a hedge against you know a Venezuelan type you know printing of money. You know the some of these protocols like like Uniswap that's working fine. So maybe an area of is centralized crypto trading will decrease over time and we'll see more decentralized crypto trading. I think it's going to fall on the spectrum. I don't see it with no value, but I also don't see it as a panacea that's going to change everything directly. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I, you know, it's, it's amazing to see how, how fast this area emerged into public consciousness and now how quickly some of these things have fallen apart. And you've been, you know, a firsthand witness in writing some exceptionally important stuff along the way. And I, I really appreciate you. you taking the time to, to join me on the podcast. My pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter 
at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.